Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. That's where we are today. Isaiah chapter 1. We're beginning a series of messages that will take us through some selected passages of Isaiah. I'll explain that in a moment. Here's the key concept today. There is recklessness in rebellion, but God offers forgiveness. God offers forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 1 is where we are today. I, I don't know, as you find that passage, I don't know how many Bibles you own, but I own a few. Probably doesn't surprise you any, right? I own various editions, various translations of the Bible, and some of the same translation I own various copies because they have different kinds of helps and study guides and those kinds of things. Now, that doesn't shock you because I'm a pastor. You would expect me to have uh, a few Bibles, but one of those Bibles is a Thompson Chain Reference Bible in the NIV text. I refer to it often. It's a study Bible. It's got a lot of charts and helps and introductions and so forth. And, and so it's a tool, in, ter, in, in a sense, for me to use as I seek to study to deliver messages to you. I often refer to it. But I haven't read it for that, that edition. I haven't read in my devotions for quite some time. I use it more as a reference tool. But this, just recently, I was reading through the book of Isaiah in my devotion time in that edition, and I found something that I had forgotten. I discovered that 37 years ago, I took that edition, that Bible, which was brand new at the time, 1983, came out in the NIV text. I took that Bible, and I was reading through Isaiah also. And 37 years ago, I underlined a series of verses as I read through Isaiah. I underlined them in red-colored pencil, and as I read again that, same, that edition just, just recently, I discovered why I underlined those particular verses. Each one of those verses is a verse of hope. Some of them are set in some pretty bleak situations where the prophet is speaking harsh words to the people of Israel, but also then he interjects this hope. And I, I rediscovered them as I was reading once again. They are beacons of hope in a setting of despair. And what I'm going to do for the next nine weeks is just pick nine of those underlined verses that, I, that hit me reading it in uh, 37 years ago, and I'm going to share with you this series called Hope from Isaiah. I don't know what I was going through at that point in my life. I was uh, a year out of seminary. I was in my first church, and maybe I needed hope. Maybe I sensed I was over my head in terms of what I was doing and what I was facing, and we get hope from Isaiah. Let's go to the very first underlined verse. It's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. You follow along as I read. Isaiah says, the voice of God, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, before we zero in on that one verse, let's remind ourselves about what we know about the prophet Isaiah. You have to go back quite a ways. 930 B.C., the nation Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the, the name Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Both of those kingdoms had a series of evil kings. In the north, 
All of their kings were evil. In the south, at least some of the kings tried to follow the one true God. It was in this period of the divided kingdom that the majority of the Old Testament prophets spoke because they were speaking out against the evil they were seeing in their land. They were warning against the fact that this disobedience on the part of the people of God going towards other gods and not worshiping the one true God in the way they ought, this was going to bring calamity and judgment upon the land. And Isaiah was one of those prophets who spoke at that time. He was active as a prophet from 740 B.C. to 690, a span of 50 years. Jewish tradition tells us that he was martyred by the evil king Manasseh during his reign. But history tells us that the kingdom of Assyria in 745 B.C. started a path of aggression, expanding their borders and moving from east to west coming towards Israel. Under the king Tiglath-Pileser III, they started to expand, conquering nations as they went. And by the time they got to that northern kingdom, it was 722 B.C., and the name of the king at that point was Sargon, the Assyrian king. And under Sargon II, they conquered that northern part of Israel, carried the inhabitants off into captivity in Assyria, and they never came back again. At this time, however, when this was all going on, Egypt considered the Holy Land to be its territory. The entire area that we now know as Israel, was con Egypt considered that they owned it. And so when Assyria invaded those areas, Egypt mobilized their armies. And by the time they got all mobilized and, and moving up the coast of the Mediterranean, King Hezekiah in the south, in Judah, he had to make a decision. Who was he going to side with? Was he going to side with the Assyrians and pay them tribute so that they would stay away, or would he side with the Egyptians? Hezekiah sided with the Egyptians, and it was a bad move because the Assyrian army came back. And in 701, under King Sennacherib, the army conquered. There was no northern kingdom anymore. Now they conquered the southern kingdom entirely except for the city of Jerusalem. And in that moment, when the armies of Assyria were camped around the city of Jerusalem, we see a prayer miracle like none other. King Hezekiah goes to prayer, and he pleads with God, save the city, preserve this city that you have your, your blessing on. It's recorded in Isaiah 37 as well as 2 Kings 19. And as Hezekiah pleaded with God, God answered his prayer, sent the, the uh, angel of death to the Assyrian camp. 185,000 soldiers died in one night. The Assyrians were decimated. They went back to Nineveh never to return. But soon, it was no longer the Assyrians that Judah had to worry about because the Babylonian kingdom rose up, conquered Assyria, adopted all of those um, captives from the northern and the portions of the southern kingdoms that were, were ruined, and they came back to Jerusalem. Now it's the Babylonians and they conquered Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. They carried off waves of captivity, uh, people in captivity, starting in 586 B.C. That was 150 years after Isaiah's ministry. But I say all that to point out to you that Isaiah prophesied it all, and more so. He prophesied 
the return of the, of the exiles. He prophesied the coming of the Messiah. He prophesied the end times and the glory of the Messiah and the new kingdom and the new earth where nations will flock to his rule. All of this. And throughout the, the prophecy of Isaiah, consistently he's warning the people about the fact that disobedience has a price. But you can come back to the Lord. There is an invitation and forgiveness is offered. In the passage that we're going to look at, we see why Isaiah had to speak to the children of Israel in that way. Go back in your chapter, chapter 1, and start reading in verse 2, because here's what the Lord is seeing from His chosen people. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. God looks at the nation that He has chosen, the people that He loves, and He sees only rejection. He has shown them grace after grace. He rescued them from the slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness and planted them in the, uh, in the land of promise. He's given them laws that if they would obey would enable them to live in harmony. He sent them rain in season, crops for food, victory over their enemies. But like spoiled children, what the children of Israel have done is they've taken those blessings for granted. They think somehow it's all because of their own ability and their own might. They're not following God's ways. And what they're starting to do is to look to the other gods, the pagan gods of the nations around them and following them. Because these gods don't seem to be so picky. These gods don't seem to have so many rules. There's not such an emphasis on morality and compassion and justice and these kinds of things with those gods why don't we just follow them? They're starting to be seduced. But all the while, they're keeping up the habit of the rituals, but in an empty way. They think somehow that they can pull the wool over God's eyes. As long as we go through the motions, as long as we do the rituals, God won't notice the fact that we're actually being seduced to believe in and follow the ways of these pagan gods. Isaiah describes that. God does see it. Look at verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you, appear, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies." I want you to notice something. They are religious while they are rebellious. It is possible to be religious and rebellious at the same time, but it never works out well. In their rebelliousness, they're going through the motions. They're trampling the courts of God, he says. They're showing up for the holiday services. They, they're doing the sacrifices that they're meant to do. But what they've missed is the heart of God. You see, there were probably some in Israel hearing the words of Isaiah, and they're saying, well, why is God so mad? I mean, you know, we're doing all the stuff he asks us to do. We show up for every single holiday, and I make all the sacrifices. But it hasn't changed their heart. 
And without a changed heart, it hasn't changed their life. And going through the motions of religion without a changed heart and a changed life, God calls hypocrisy, and He sees through it every time. Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Can you imagine hearing that from God? It sounds like God has abandoned them. It sounds like it's all over. He's no longer interested in anything that they have to say because of their rejection. But this is not abandonment. This is parenting. And those of you who are parents, you know what I mean. You know what it's like to have to discipline your children if you're a good parent. Your son, let's, let's say your son's grades are slipping. He's not doing the work that he's assigned, and the test is coming up soon, and you know about that test. And you know that he's not keeping up with the rest of the class or where the teacher expects. And yet, as the test comes up, he comes to you one evening and says, can I borrow the car? I want to go out for my fr with my friends. How do you react in that moment? What you should say is, until you do your work, make that study, write that paper, get ready for that test, there's no going out with your friends. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. What you should say is, you need me to provide you with external discipline now so that you can become a self-disciplined person and become the person that God wants you to be. What you should say is, if you need help, I'm going to be with you. I'll help you. I'll try my best. But you can't go and do what you want until first you do what you need to do. That is parenting. And parenting is hard work but it's work, the work of love. And here God is parenting His people. He parents these children, the children of Israel, but it's not just punishment. While He parents them and gives them discipline, He's showing them what it should be like. He's inviting them to live the kind of life that would demonstrate a changed heart within. Read on in verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God calls them to a changed life, a morally clean life, a purified life. And He shows them these seven actions which would demonstrate in His sight that they really mean business with Him. Wash and be clean. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed, which could be translated rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. In other words, he's saying this. Your religion is rejected because your religion has not changed your life. When you are encountering me the way you ought to encounter me, I want to see trans uh, transformation. I don't want to see going through the motions and just an empty ritual. Your life has not been changed, which means your heart has not been changed. I'm looking for both. And when I see these kinds of things in action, I know you will have been cleansed, not just going through the motions. And that brings us to our verse of hope, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Come. Come is a great word, isn't it? It's a word of invitation. Come. No matter how fancy an invitation is worded when you receive it, 
it breaks down to come. I mean, for instance, Mr. and Mrs. Smith request the honor of your company at the wedding of their daughter. It's just a fancy way to say come. Maybe it's on parchment paper. Maybe it's with flowing script in one of those envelopes that has a bunch of other envelopes inside of it. But it's all about come. And when you get an invitation like that, doesn't it depend on who Mr. and Mrs. Smith are to you as to whether or not you'll go? I mean, for instance, if we get a letter like that and I consult with Sylvia and we see the invitation, we agree together. You know, I, I've never heard of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I have no idea who they are. As far as I know, I don't know who their daughter is. In that situation, we may not be too inclined to actually go because of that invitation. But if I know the Smiths, and if I love the Smiths, and if I love their daughter like my own, we're going to be there because the invitation has come. Now consider who's giving this invitation to the Israelites, the creator of all there is, the lover of their soul, the source of all their hope and all their help, the giver of mercy and grace. He is the one who says, come, surely they should come. And when he says, come, he says, come and reason together. But when God says, come reason together, he's not saying, let's have a debate. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, maybe I've been unreasonable. Maybe I've been too hard on you. Maybe my, my rules have been too strict. Let's find some middle ground. I mean, you know, I, I, I've got to give up on some things. I've got to go a little bit easy. I understand. I'm ready to compromise. If you're ready to compromise, let's reason together. That's exactly not what God means. He means, come, I am going to give you a chance to agree with what is true. You come. And when you agree with what is true, if you take me up on this offer, I promise to forgive and bless and cleanse you. Our relationship is not over, but you have to come and agree with what is true. Reasoning together with God is not meant to change Him. It's meant to change us. So what does that mean? What, what, are, what are the means that God uses to reason with people, to get us to say yes to the things that are true? Well, one of them is conscience, that little voice within you that tells you that you're not comfortable with doing wrong. A Sunday school teacher asked his class of small boys, what is it inside of you that causes you to feel bad when you do something wrong? And a little boy raised his hand and goes, my stomach. Yes, but Why? Why is your stomach queasy when you know you're doing wrong? It's because of our conscience. At its very best, our conscience is Jesus whispering to our heart, showing us the way. But your conscience doesn't always function at its very best, does it? Consciences can be seared. Hearts can be hardened. We can start to ignore that prod, that voice of God. God will reason with us there, but that's not the only place He does because He knows that about us. He also reasons with us in His providence. Providence is God's watchful care over all that is, over our lives and over our world. He reasons with us by demonstrating that He is the guide of what's happening in history. He reasons with us by answering our prayers and showing us His way. He convinces us 
in this reasoning that God is always watching, He's always working, He's always guiding both history and the big picture and your individual life with His invisible hand. Providence is at work. Conscience reminds us of the fact of sin. Providence reminds us of God's watchful care and His involvement. And He reasons with us on uh, an ongoing way in His Word, in Revelation. The Bible tells us the way we ought to be living, showing us the principles for life. The Bible shows us examples, both bad and good, from which we are to learn. And the Word made flesh, Jesus, shows us how important we are, the heart of God. It shows us how much He loves us. He demonstrates that in His loving sacrifice that can bring forgiveness, that can wash us clean, and that can provide purity. It is His work that gives us hope. We can't save ourselves, but... As God reasons with us through His Word and through the small voice of the Spirit saying, this is what you need, and Jesus Himself offering grace and mercy, we can find forgiveness. And when we do, what God is looking for is a radical transformation. Things change on the inside and must on the outside as well. Listen to the inside. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. He's picturing in the minds of the, the hearers the indelible stain, that crimson red stain on a white cloth. You look at that when that happens and you say to yourself, this is never going to be clean again. I'm never going to get this stain out. But God says, what's impossible for you is very easy for me because you might be settling right now. It might be that your heart carries a stain a stain from the things that you did, a stain from the places that you went, a stain because of the things that you watched, or a stain because of what other people did to you. All these things leave a mark. God says, don't convince yourself that you have to live with that stain. Don't convince yourself that that stain is so deep that it will forever be a part of you or that it is who you are. I can get rid of that stain. Not a trace will remain. I can make you white as snow, pure in my sight. And out of that purity, a new life will spring, a transformed life. Isaiah is saying, rituals will never do that for you. Empty religion will never do that for you. I don't care how many holidays you show up, it will never do that for you. It is only the touch of God's grace that purifies you. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, he is, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with the one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. It comes only by grace. Reason with me, God says. Believe what is true, and grace will change everything in your life. Let me tell you a story about grace. It's a story that comes from, you've heard of Charles Stanley. You know Charles Stanley. You've seen him on TV. Uh, he tells a story about his last year in seminary. Uh, he was taking a test at the end of the year in the lecture hall, and the students filed in, and, the, and they had these little blue booklets they had to write in, and they gave the test forms out. And the test form had an opening paragraph that said this, read, read all the way through this exam before you begin to answer the questions. And so the students in that class started to read through the exam. And as they read through that exam, it became very clear to everyone in the room that no one had studied hard enough. 
He said, I heard the groans and the moans of the people who were reading these questions that were in this exam, and, and it was very, very difficult. It was a low point. But then you got to the last page in the exam, and this was the sentence. You can complete this exam as given, or you can simply sign your name here, hand in the test, and receive an A. And all of a sudden, it became clear, this is not a test. This is an example of grace. And one by one, students from all over the lecture hall signed their names, walked down to the desk, put the, put the uh, de a test on the desk, and left. But not everyone. Why? Because some of them hadn't followed the directions. They just dove into the questions, and they're starting to work on this test, and they're sweating it out. And it was worse as they see people get up and give the test in. Thinking, they're finished already. How could they be possibly finished already? And they're sweating through this test. There was one guy who did read all the way through the test, but he said to himself, you know, I want to earn my grade. I'm going to do this my way. So he took the test knowing he didn't have to, and he got a C. Some of them working through the test got so angry at it. It was, being, it was so hard, they folded up the paper and they left never having turned it in. And they missed grace. See, when God says, come, let us reason, what He's offering in that is grace for mercy and change, the grace that transforms our life. And it's all possible because Jesus took on Himself the penalty for our sin. He invites us to receive that cleansing forgiveness and experience grace upon grace. Now, all of that is what we celebrate in communion today, the fact of that mercy available to you. So before the team comes and leads us in a song that will bring us to communion, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God of mercy and grace. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are constantly inviting us to come, come further, come closer, come near in fellowship. And as we do, we experience the grace that only You can give. Thank You, Lord. We, as we turn our attention now to communion and to the cross, we pray that once again we come humbly before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Let's declare this together. Jesus came and loved me, took my sins to Calvary. He has made a way for me. Now my eyes are open since I've come to know him. His great love has set me
As we go to our communion time, I'm going to ask you to uh, take that communion packet that you received on the way in. And for those of you at home, I trust that you have some communion elements that you'll be using as you celebrate with us. And for those who are not choosing to celebrate with us uh, today, I understand that. And we thank you for watching, and we'll see you again next week. It takes a little dexterity to peel back these, some of these layers, so I'll let you do that. I have pre-peeled mine. Uh, thank you. But in any event, um, as you do that, what we're saying here is that it is the blood of Christ that has the power to transform. It is the blood of Christ that has the power to wipe us clean, to give us a clean slate. And that's what we celebrate as we remember His sacrifice on the cross. And I'm going to give you a few moments of quiet reflection and prayer before we partake. Because it may be that you're here today or you're watching on the internet or out in the courtyard and you're saying, you know, I am just going through the motions. I am going through the ritual, thinking that that's really what it's about. But I'm not sure that I've ever been transformed from the inside out, just asking Jesus to forgive me forever. And if that's you, you can find that forgiveness right now by calling on the Lord. And for those of us who have already made that commitment, this is a time to prepare our hearts to confess what needs to be confessed, to ready ourselves to take the communion elements and to rejoice in what we have in Jesus. So would you bow in prayer with me and just pray silently whatever you need to bring before the Lord. Lord, in these moments we realize that we gather for worship not because we're perfect or have it all together, but we gather for worship because we don't. And we know that you can put us back together. You can heal the broken places. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiving love and for your transforming grace. And now, Lord, as we take these elements, we pray that we would honor you and remember you in the way that you asked us to. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. So take that wafer out of the top element in your cup. And he said, and when he broke it, he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul adds the words, Whenever you drink the, uh, drink the bread and me, eat the bread and drink the cup, excuse me, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you peel back that second layer, let's drink the cup together. Lord, we thank you. For your love and your mercy, we thank you that you took the penalty of our sin on yourself, and we thank you that our debt is paid, and we are wiped clean because of your love. We rejoice in that, and we know, Lord Jesus, that 
as you look down on us right now, you're thankful to see that we are remembering you in the way that you prescribed, rejoicing in all that we have because of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand and pray the benediction. So why don't you go ahead and stand up. And before we have the benediction, let's do something we haven't done in a long time together. And that is sing at the end, right? Now, there's not going to be any words because nobody knew I was going to do this unless, unless they figured it out in the meantime. But we're going to go back to the chorus of the song we already sang just a moment ago. And that is, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You know that, right? Let's sing it together. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, we thank you that we can be washed clean because of your love and your mercy. We pray that we would live that kind of life that you call us to, that transformed life. In the week ahead, may people see us as unique because we are the property of Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.